welcome to the RHS Gardening Podcast. I'm Charlotte Brooks, the art curator at the RHS Lindley Library in London. Later on, our expert advice team will be discussing some of your pressing gardening questions, including pet-proofing your garden. But first, trees. You've probably seen some of the prominent media campaigns, Facebook, Instagram and so on, all about British trees. Trees help protect us from flooding. They're great for wildlife and have a lot of other benefits but they're at risk. In both natural and domestic environments, there's a real need to protect, promote and to propagate them. On November the 30th this year, the Woodland Trust is organising a mass tree planting event. It's part of their big climate fight back campaign. We spoke to the Trust about the vital role that trees play and the different ways in which you can get involved and help protect them. My name's Carol Honeybun-Kelly. I'm from the Woodland Trust. I work on the Strategic Woodland Projects team and at the minute I'm working on the Big Climate Fightback. So the Big Climate Fightback is a campaign we're running over the autumn and we wanted a mass planting event that everyone could get involved in and over the summer we saw how keen people were to respond to the climate crisis and actually quite how upsetting and worrying people were finding it. We know that trees are a huge part of the solution to our climate problems. Not all of it. We do have to address some of the other ways that we live. But it's a very big way to help. And we thought if we could engage people in planting a tree or pledging to plant a tree, then it would enable people to make a small step. But loads of people making that small step could genuinely make a difference. And that's what the Big Climate Fight Back is all about. Trees are incredibly important in our landscape. We've all grown up with them and watched them come and go and mainly stay for decades and hundreds of years in some cases. Trees do so many jobs for us all. So as well as locking up carbon, producing oxygen, which is key as part of their reason for to be a solution for the climate crisis, whilst they're doing that, they're also providing habitat for wildlife, livestock and people. They're preventing soil erosion. They're slowing surface water runoff, which at times like this, when we've had such incredible incredible amounts of rain is really important for everybody's sort of safety and quality of life. So they'll do lots of jobs for us. And it's all about planting the right tree in the right place to get all their benefits and make our landscape much more resilient to the challenges that are coming up. So it's really important, we at the Woodland Trust believe, to get the right tree in the right place. When we're doing our planting and woodland creation, that woodland has to be in the right place. It could spoil a huge bit of the landscape. It could use valuable arable soil if we get the wrong woodland in the wrong place. And it's the same when you're planting at home. You need to really think about the space you've got for a tree, the species you'd like, whether you're planting to have a little bit of colour in your garden and whether you want that in the spring or the autumn or both. Because all our native trees can do a superb job for you. So you might want something in a garden like cherry, which has blossom in the spring and then can provide cherries for you if you get to them first or more likely the birds. If you want a rowan that's sort of tall and straight and although it will grow tall, it's not too wide, so it's manageable. Or if you'd like something like a crabapple or a, a holly or a hawthorn that can be trimmed and be kept to a natural garden size. But for us, it's all about the UK sourced and grown to make sure we're not bringing in pests and disease and to make sure that the tree that you plant, you can live with for the next few decades. 
Our big climate fight back campaign is going to really culminate on the 30th of November. And that date's been chosen. It's sort of toward the end of National Tree Week. It's right at the start of the bare roots planting season. Trees are planted between November and March because that's where they're dormant and they will travel better from nurseries and there'll be less disruption. So come the spring, they're ready to wake up, um, set off growing, hardly knowing that they've been moved. So what we've got is people up and down the country now pledging to plant a tree. And if they can plant on the 30th, that will be great because imagine you know a million people being out tree planting on the same day it really sends a message that the UK is ready to do what it can to fight climate change on an individual basis so we have planting on a number of our sites and you can go to our website at woodlandtrust.org.uk slash planting events and see what's going on see if you can sign up for one locally and if you're not able to do that and no one else around you seems to be running anything for that then you can source a tree yourself you can go find an acorn or a conker out in the fields at the moment and plant one of those you can you know go to any tree nursery or online and see if you can find yourself a tree if you have space and there's loads of ways you can get more involved with tree planting we have a free trees in schools and communities scheme and we send out over a million trees a year for free to groups who are planting on publicly accessible land so even if you don't have room to plant a tree or a garden to plant it in then get together with your local school or members of your community find a playing field a school playground or just an unloved corner and if it's room for trees in there and you can get the landowner's permission come to us at woodlandtrust.org.uk slash free trees and you will be able to source some trees with advice from us on where and how to plant and how to look after them and for more information about the big climate fight back then you can google just that and you'll find us or also look on social media for the hashtag every tree counts because genuinely however small a one planting action is when they're all joined together then every tree does count carol honeybun kelly from the woodland trust you can find links to the woodland trust's website go to our program page at rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast a recent event that highlighted how we can get the most out of our urban trees was the annual RHS MacLeod Lecture, which this year was given by Dr Andrew Hirons. Andrew focused on the urgent need for carefully thought-out tree planning and planting in our towns and cities, and also the surprising impact that choosing the right variety can have. You can catch up and watch Andrew's fascinating lecture on YouTube. So, links as before. Well, we spoke to him before he went on stage to ask what advice he'd give to gardeners when choosing a tree for your own garden. Hello, I'm Dr Andrew Hirons and I'm here to give the RHS John McCloyd lecture about trees and, and their impact in society and how we can go about selecting trees for urban environments and our green infrastructure. Tree selection is um, quite a big subject area, really. One of the first things that anybody's got to think about, of course, is the scale of the tree. Trees start off rather small, but have uh, the capacity, in some cases, to reach over 100 metres. So you've really got to have some sort of vision for the future if you plant a tree. But beyond their overall parameters in terms of their size and scale, you might want to be thinking about the qualities that they can offer for biodiversity, for the aesthetic impact they might have on your garden or landscape. And they are important. 
But one of the things I'm particularly interested in is what are the attributes trees have that enable them to survive in different situations and particularly challenging situations that we find in our towns and cities. So some of the the most difficult scenarios are in paved environments, for example, where you have often really constrained rooting environments, you've got impermeable surfaces, and you've got lots of reflected heat coming from buildings and glass and, yeah, the paved surfaces. So placing a tree into that environment, you can imagine, is totally different from what it would have been evolved to grow in in a forest or woodland. Of course, there are some urban situations like parks and like larger gardens, which are great for trees. They have very little competition for light, as they might in a forest situation, and they've got unconstrained rooting environments. And so from that point of view, the urban matrix, if you like, is a mix of almost ideal conditions for trees and really hostile conditions for trees. And so understanding your particular site is, of course, really important. Some examples of trees that do well in paved environments would be something like ginkgo biloba, which is a drought-tolerant tree. It's rather attractive. It's got an attractive crown form. It gives a lovely yellow in, in autumn. And it really is quite tolerant of a lot of urban conditions and pollution. So that's certainly one to look out for. Other uh, examples would be things like liquid amber, styracoflua. That's, uh, again, rather tolerant. Is rather nice crown form, great autumn colour and so on. But uh, there are some trees that we plant really rather widely, such as many of the lime trees, the tilia, that although they survive well in our urban environments, they don't really perform that well in many ways. They they tend just to sit there and not uh, do a great deal. So, you know, looking for trees that can perform well and grow, establish and contribute is something that I think is quite important for improving the performance of our landscapes as a whole. And rather than just selecting trees that either just sit there or indeed like uh, many birch, for example, in in a paved situation would uh, really struggle to deal with the drought imposed by paved surfaces. And, And indeed, they end up losing their leaves very early in the summer and really don't think they can be said to be performing terribly well. And there's also potentially issues, particularly with birch, around the allergenicity of their pollen that can cause uh, some people problems. So understanding which trees and the characteristics of trees enable good landscape performance, as well as understanding those attributes of trees that may yeah, lead to some problems as well, is quite important when you're selecting trees. If you get the right tree, then actually it shouldn't really require much management. In fact, I always say to my students that no management ought to be a management option for trees. And that's because really, if you get yourself into a situation where you're having to control the the size of a tree through pruning, then you're introducing lots of wounds to that tree and that makes it more vulnerable to pests and pathogens. You're obviously having a carbon cost from practitioners coming out to to prune your tree. The tree is losing biomass that it's worked hard to secure. And loss of habitat and loss of crown area, all of which reduces the amenity value of that tree. You know, I think getting the right tree 
an appropriate tree into your garden or your street is absolutely fundamental. And if you can, from that point on, you should just be able to watch that tree flourish and grow. Okay, I'm just going to pick out a couple of trees that I really enjoy seeing in, in urban gardens. The first would be something like Cornus Cuso. It's a fantastic dogwood and it has a brilliant floral bracts that give this white cover the small tree in sort of white well they look like flowers but they're really floral bracts and, and that's a really interesting small tree i also really enjoy uh, seeing something like a magnolia perhaps a magnolia star wars or a magnolia spectrum and and some of those other small magnolias are really fantastic but although they can be brilliant, they tend to last for only a few weeks in flower. That is somewhat of a limitation. I think something that gives all year round interest is something like the Stuartia pseudocamellia. And that's because it, it not only has fantastic prominent flowers in summer, but actually its winter silhouette is brilliant because it's got this sort of light coloured bark that is really prominent and uh, has interesting texture to it as well. So I really enjoy that species. And another species that you might not see quite so much is the Syringia reticulata, so a Japanese tree lilac. And that is related to some of the more shrubby lilacs, but it's capable of really standing some really quite tough conditions as well as having great floral properties. So there really is a great range of uh, trees that are available for small gardens. Some of them are, are also really quite tolerant to drought conditions and other challenges that might be present on your particular site. And if um, you're interested in, in getting some impartial advice on tree selection, I'd really recommend that you download a free guide that I produced, and that's called Tree Species Selection for Green Infrastructure a guide for specifiers, and it's available on the TDAG website, www.tdag.org. It's quite an efficient way to start beginning to think about your tree selection challenge. And so I really would recommend that to you. And finally, it's time to tackle some of your plant, and indeed pet, problems. So let's go over to the RHS advisory rooms, where the team is sifting through a batch of recent garden inquiries. This service is free to members who can ask questions online, by phone or post. If you're not a member and you'd like to join, go online to find out more. Hello, I'm Lee Hunt. I'm Becky Mealy. I'm Jenny Bowden. Diana Godfrey has written in by email. My acanthus has many big seeds in the dried flower spikes. Do I just put them in the ground? How is it best to cultivate them? So, Becky, have you sown acanthus from seed or...? I actually not? haven't. I've, I actually prefer to take it as a root cutting. You get a okay. lot more success growing it as from root cuttings. You can grow it from seed. So normally you would sow the seeds in springtime. They're a seedling that likes a nice deep root run because they don't like to have their roots disturbed, oddly enough, when they do germinate. So if you are going to sow the seed, sow it in spring and sow it in a nice deep pot. They germinate at 15 centigrade, so not don't need bottom heat or anything too special. So you've got these sort of brown seed pods on the spike and 
that's not the whole seed. You, you've got to wait for it to break open or, or wait till it's ripe and break it open yourself. Apparently in the native habitat, they do explode and the seeds go quite a long way, but it doesn't necessarily happen here in England because the summers aren't quite hot enough. So yeah, the seed looks like a sweet chestnutty colour and that opens up and you've got many, many seeds inside each one of those. And so, yeah, they like a nice gritty mix and, as you say, a nice deep root run. But quite honestly, it's something that I can't get rid of in my garden. I, the last thing I'd want to do is propagate it from seed. But, you know, each yeah. to their own. Yeah. I'm presuming when you try and dig it up, the roots left behind make root cuttings so easily that they grow for you. Yeah. So yeah, it does go back to this. It's like, well, I'm wondering really whether the, getting those sections of root, which are kind of as thick as you can get them up to, pencil thick, that are only about seven eight centimeters two three inches long keeping them the right way up so which end's the plant and which end is furthest away towards the root the top end pushing that top up down into the compost and then those will root like your things you were trying to get rid of and produce new plants for you by spring yeah it's flat top and slanted bottom to keep them the right way up yeah if you cut yeah. them like that it makes it so much easier when Absolutely. you get them back to the bench yeah Becky, we've got plenty more questions. What's the next one, please? R. Crilly from North Hans has written in and asking, our family is getting a puppy in December, a Labrador. Are there any plants we need to be careful of being poisonous or dangerous for dogs as lilies are for cats? So, yeah, it's something to be aware of, isn't it? Jenny, any thoughts of what it's to avoid completely? Certainly lilies are very well known for being poisonous to cats, as are hyacinths and azaleas, as the houseplant ones, as another couple of examples. Dogs, well, they apparently don't get on well with clematis and corn cockles or a couple of other examples sort of randomly picked. Now, I've picked these examples from two particular websites, which are the websites that we reference people to when they ask questions like this. So for dogs, it's the Dogs Trust website, and there's a PDF which has the lists of plants that need to be avoided for the dogs and for the cats it's cats protection so there's some really useful lists there a lot of the plants you find are mainly house plants for dogs and cats so often it's not when the cats and dogs are outside it's when they're inside and bored because this is it it's when they're in the house and you're at work and they're left unattended that's when they they might go oh what's this and go and try and have a find of it and especially with cats they like things that are like a grass so because they obviously like to eat grass when they are feeling a bit bored best to avoid house plants that they can reach i think it's worth pointing out that um despite many of these plants being really common so things like daffodils and elephants ears oleander and larkspur there's not actually many reported poisonings of dogs, but it has to be said, particularly with young puppies, they're very inquisitive and you might find, certainly for a short time, that they do start chewing everything. So it is worth being aware of this just to make sure, because trips to the vet tend to be rather expensive and therefore we'd rather to avoid that as well as obviously looking after a sick dog. So it's useful to be aware, but if you've got some of these and they show no interest in them at all then there's no necessarily need to remove all these from your garden and your house 
because they're not the same list for cats as they are for dogs. So you start, and it's different list for human toxicity as well. So if you start removing everything, you'll find that you have a very bare garden. But also on the dog's trust list, there's a few things like bone meal and other things that you would use in the garden and fertilizers. So obviously these are the type of things you need to be also aware of. But yeah, the dog's trust list is a really extensive list for everything that you could possibly And if you want one place for the whole lot, our potentially harmful plants page on the RHS website gives you all the human toxicity stuff and links to the Dogs Trust and Cat Care International. So Fiona Ross has sent in a question. How do we protect the lawn from being burnt by dogweed? And how do we repair the brown patches? So, Becky, have you had dogs? Have you had this problem? Yeah, not so much. It's usually with female dogs, so you can usually, like, burn the grass. Mm. Often it's if it's dry, and it depends on how much the dog's drunk as well, because if it's quite concentrated, that's when it's worst. I mean, if you can keep maybe a watering can by the lawn, so, uh, you know, to water after the dog's been, that can help dilute it. But obviously, again, we're not always there, and you're not always going to be following your dog everywhere with a watering can it's just not practical you can get some products that you put in your dog's drinking water so dog rocks and they're supposed to help make the wheat more alkaline and that's supposed to help again it depends on your dog and how acidic they are it might be that the vet could recommend products that are tried and tested so i think i'd probably go down that route but yeah keeping watering the patches just to wash it all through as much as possible and then, I guess, to repair those patches, mm. what would you do, Lee? Uh, well, seeding is always going to be cheapest. But if you want to get rid of those patches quickly, then get a roll of turf. Now, they are often available right into the winter if you kind of seek them out at your local specialist. They're not very expensive, you know, maybe two, three pounds. All I'd do is unroll a section of the turf place it over the the top of the patch and then ideally with a a spade or a a proper edging iron chop round the patch but through the turf at the same time so then you've cut the same size hole in the lawn as you've cut a piece of turf then you can use the spade to chisel out a gap for that turf to drop in and once you remove that drop the turf in and hopefully it'll be like invisible mending lick a bit more soil around the gaps around the edges and And even at that time, you should grow away pretty quick and cover it. As before, there are links to more information on the plants and issues discussed on our programme page. Well, that's all we've got time for today. We'll be back in a fortnight with a books podcast special, where some of my literary-minded RHS colleagues discuss the best garden-related titles to give and keep this Christmas. Plus, we'll take a nostalgic wander through gardening and nature-related children's books. Perfect listening for a chilly winter's evening. Until then, from me, Charlotte Brooks, and all here at the Lindley Library, goodbye. Goodbye.